Uh, why don't I pray, and then we'll, I'll try and explain that passage to us. So, um, Father, we are so grateful that you've given us your word. Um, and, Lord, in it are your great and precious promises. Um, and, Lord, as we look at one of those today, um, please would you encourage us. Uh, please would you challenge us. Uh, please would you give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as a pastor, I've talked to so many people over the years who've said to me something along these lines, something like, uh, well, surely if it's God's will, it wouldn't be so hard. Or surely if I was really living out God's will, if I was like doing what he wanted me to do, um, I wouldn't be suffering so much. This wouldn't be such a challenge. Or surely if this was what God wanted, it would just be easy. Um, I've heard that so many times. Have you thought that? Are you thinking that um, in your life in some ways? Uh, and there's all kinds of reasons people suffer. A lot of those reasons are common to everyone. Uh, and so the, a lot of suffering comes, no matter your religion, your race, your age, your shoe size, your eye color, whatever it is, a lot of suffering is just common to everyone, right? And so um, it just comes with the territory. And then there's a lot of suffering that does come along with your religion. It does come along with your race. It does come along with your gender and so on. Um, and the Bible has a lot to say about those kinds of suffering. It says a lot about sickness. It says a lot about death, a lot about poverty, about emotional wounds, mental health. And these are all really common forms of suffering. It says a lot about those things. Uh, but the passage we're looking at today is talking about a specific kind of suffering. It's talking about the kind of suffering that comes specifically because someone is a Christian. So the kind of suffering uh, that comes specifically because a Christian is maybe living out their calling, that they're actually trying to live their best as a Christian. And there's a suffering that comes along with that. And what we're going to see today is to be a Christian actually is to suffer. And so if you are a Christian, it means you, you are going to suffer. Um, it comes with challenges and difficulties and suffering. Um, and it could be you've experienced this kind of suffering, the kind of suffering that comes along with being a Christian already. So maybe for you, it's, it's in your family, or maybe it's with your friends, because maybe you're the only Christian. Maybe you're the only one uh, in your family or your group of friends, uh, and they, maybe they shame you for that. Maybe they uh, think less of you. Maybe they take jabs at your faith. Maybe, you know, Thanksgiving isn't always as fun every year because, you know, Uncle so-and-so is going to bring it up. Um, I had an uncle like that. And maybe it has to do with some of the moral decisions you've made in life. So decisions you've made around dating, decisions you've made in work, decisions you've made in your finances. You've chosen to do the right thing when everyone else around you doesn't care or they, they think you're crazy for making the kind of decision that you made. I think about the suffering that Clinton and Hannah Harper are experiencing right now. They made a huge decision in life to be obedient to God's call in their life, to like come and move here to Los Angeles. Uh, and they were following God in that obedience, and now they're in, because of their obedience, that decision is causing them to suffer in lots of ways. Um, being part of a church plant, that's a form of suffering because it's hard work being in a church plant. The church plant doesn't have all the bells, and I mean, we don't have a building, we have a tent, <laughs> you know, uh, we have some rugs. Uh, we don't have all the bells and whistles. It has more needs, we have more weaknesses, all those kinds of things. And so when you're experiencing that kind of suffering, then you need to know three things, and this passage shows us them. So it shows us, you need to know where suffering comes from, you need to know what suffering does, and then you need to know what you can do with it. Um, where it comes from, what it does, what you can do with it. And that's what today's passage is going to show us. We're going to see that both Paul and the Ephesian Christians who he was writing to were suffering directly because of their faith, directly because of decisions that they made to follow God. 
Um, and so both first century and 21st century Christians have to answer the question, the same question, is it worth it? Like, is it worth it to go through that suffering? Um, and what Paul shows us in Ephesians 3 is that we can endure the challenges, the sufferings, and the difficulties of being a Christian. Uh, and of course it will be worth it if we do that. So he shows us that we can do it, and of course it will be worth it if we're able to grasp those three things, where it comes from, what it does, and what you can do with it. And by the way, if you get those three things, it will not make your suffering go away. So grasping those things doesn't mean your suffering will go away. It just means it will help you be able to endure it. And so let's look at it and see if it really is worth it. So first, where suffering comes from. Um, Christian suffering comes not from doing what's wrong, but it comes from doing what's right. So Christian suffering comes not from doing what's wrong, but from doing what's right. And now what this is not saying, and what I'm not saying, by the way, is just to go out and look for suffering. Like I'm not saying go out and just find a way uh, to suffer and just do that. Uh, there's a word for that. That's called foolishness. So I'm not saying go out and be foolish and just look for ways to suffer. But what it is saying, what I am saying, is that when Christians go out and look for good things to do, to do good deeds, when they take a risk to share the gospel or invite a friend to church, when Christians make hard moral decisions, uh, when they choose to give away their money, oftentimes those things bring about suffering. And so you see, Christian suffering, it comes from doing something good, it comes from doing something right. Uh, let me show you this. Look at verse 1. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then there's that dash and that really weird, awkward, like it just cuts off, uh, like mid-sentence. And what that little dash means is that he stopped right in the middle of his thought. Everything from verse 2 to verse 13 is an interruption in his train of thought. Uh, he wasn't planning to write it, but as he was writing it, it just jumped in his head and he had to say it. Because uh, what you find out in verse 1 is that Paul's in prison. He's in prison. And when he says this, uh, he says he's a prisoner of Christ. Now that is a little hint that he's in prison, not for like committing a crime, but he's in prison for being a Christian. He's in prison for following God's will, which means he's, he's suffering. And notice though how he views it. I want you to see how he views his suffering. Is, does he see his suffering as an indication that he's somehow missed the will of God? Right, he's struggling, he's in prison, and so like, we, would, we would come to that and be like, well, I must have missed God's will because this isn't going right. But that's not how he sees it. For Paul, it's just the opposite. He sees his suffering as an indication that everything is going right. And there's that little hint there when he calls himself the prisoner of Christ, which is a strange phrase. It's strange, uh, first, because uh, Christ doesn't take prisoners. He's not, he's not a jailer. He's <laughs> not like out on the attack to take prisoners. It's not, it's not who he is. So that's a strange phrase for that reason. But also, it's because when Paul's writing this, he's a prisoner of Rome. And he was handed over by the Jews to become a prisoner of Rome, which means he's doubly a prisoner of both the Jews and the Romans. But instead, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying that his suffering is not an accident. It's not as if God somehow messed up. His suffering comes directly from doing what God called him to do. And what was that? Well, look at verse 7. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. So why is Paul in prison? Why is he there? How did he get there? It's for preaching to the Gentiles and leading them to faith in Christ. 
Now, what this is showing us is that Paul's suffering comes, again, not from doing something wrong, not from, doing, not from missing the will of God, but from actually embracing it, from leaning into the will of God, for doing something right. Now, maybe Paul's example isn't enough to convince you that the Bible thinks that. So let me, let me give you another one. Uh, do you remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Do you remember what happened to him? He's the favorite son, um, and the, his father, Jacob, sends him off to go and check on his older brothers who are out tending the flocks out in the fields and uh, his older brothers hate him and so what do they do they they like come they plot a plan and they say hey let's let's sell him let's get rid of we'll sell him so they sell him off into slavery uh and he then goes to this guy named potiphar's house and uh and then he gets in trouble there and potiphar puts him in prison and he's in prison and uh eventually uh he gets out of prison eventually he actually becomes second in command of all egypt and then at the end of his life, well, not the end of his life, but the end of the story in uh, Genesis, his brothers come to like, get some help from Egypt, and they meet Joseph. And when they finally realize, when he finally reveals who he is, that he's the brother that they sold into slavery, who then went to prison, they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. His brothers are terrified. But do you know what he says to them? Do you remember what he said? He said, you intended to harm me but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. So like you would sort of read that all along and think, well, Joseph must not be in the middle of God's will, but he's in the middle of God's will the whole time. In fact, through that whole story, it says over and over again, and God was with Joseph. At his darkest, lowest moments, it says God was with Joseph. And that was his perspective at the end. Uh, maybe that's, let me give you another one. Uh, here's the ultimate example, Jesus Christ, right? He's the son of God. He had everything, right? He lived in the throne room of heaven. And in our view, if you had everything, you should keep everything. Yet he gave it up. He suffered. He chose to suffer in order to save. The book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And so that means the Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ gained everything by giving everything up. Okay, how about, here's one more from outside the Bible. I'll give you two three now in the Bible. Here's one from outside, just in case you don't believe me, um, that this principle is actually universal. But at the end of World War II, Winston Churchill said this about the brave men and women who fought in the war. Uh, he said this, this one phrase, and it, it was um, put on the side of a building I used to walk by every day for like three years. So this phrase is like, you know, embossed in my mind. And here's what he said. When he's thinking of those who uh, chose to sacrifice, chose to suffer, he said this, Never before in the field of human history has so much been owed by so many to so few. You see that? It's there. The principle is there. And what we've been saying is that Christian suffering comes not from doing what's wrong, but from doing what's right. And this is an interesting point, but I don't want to sort of let us off the hook, right? So you could intellectually grab onto that and be like, yeah, great, I'm with you, I got it. Um, but I don't want to let us off the hook because if we're being intellectually honest with ourselves, the passage then leads us to this. If you're not experiencing some form of suffering for being a Christian, it might mean that you're trusting God too little. It might mean that perhaps you're living too comfortably because it seems to be that those who are suffering in the Bible are right at the center of God's will. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean just go out and look for 
Don't be foolish. Don't go out and, you know, get yourself in trouble. Um, but let me put it in these terms. If you've ever lived in a new culture, you know, a lot of you didn't grow up here. So you've like moved here. This is a new culture to you. Uh, some of you have. Uh, or if you've ever uh, traveled to a different place, to a different country, somewhere where you're not from, you'll know that when you're there for the longest time, there is a feeling of discomfort, right? Like when you're there, you're, obvi- you're like an obvious outsider and you kind of feel like, well, I don't know exactly the right way to, to do this or to say this or to, to be here. And you, sort of sometimes that discomfort is at the front and center and it's clear. And other times it's just a sort of lingering there in the background. And this is because in one way you don't, you don't belong there. It's obvious to everyone else around you that you don't belong there. Uh, last week I was uh, meeting up with a friend um, just for a coffee in the afternoon and we were sitting in a, a cafe on Sunset in Echo Park. And uh, it was the strangest thing. Uh, this car drives by and this woman shouts from the passenger window just at the top of her lungs, go back to Chicago. I don't know who this woman was. And I, it's not like I, you know, I often wear Cubs things. I wasn't. I was just wearing, I probably was wearing the shirt, to be honest. I was just wearing like a normal shirt. And I don't know, I, I, you know, I, the two of us decided we're pretty sure she was yelling at me. <laughs> we're pretty sure that she was yelling at me. Um, and I thought, how did she know? How did she know? And it, it made me think, I must stick out. I must still be, like, I must not look like I'm from here. Um, and that's the feeling, right? When you know you're different, when you know you're distinct from those around you, a little uncomfortable, uh, sometimes very uncomfortable. Well, if you're a Christian, you probably feel that. If you're a Christian, you probably feel that, or maybe you should feel that. What this text is saying is that Christians, when you feel that, should lean more into it. Like, actually embrace it. What others intended for harm, God intends for good, for the saving of many lives. Now, living this way will bring about suffering. It just will. Uh, But when it does, it's an indication that you're right at the center of God's will. So let's do away with the thought that if it's hard, it must not be God's will. And let's replace that with this biblical idea that if it's hard, you probably are in the middle of God's will. So if you're suffering for being a Christian, you're probably right where you're supposed to be. Uh, Because secondly, look at what suffering does. This is incredible. Look at number two here, what suffering does. Suffering, it actually causes... This is weird. The text says it causes marvelous beings to marvel. Suffering causes marvelous beings to marvel. Uh, Look again at verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's a weird verse. We're going to start at the end and work our way backwards, uh, back to the front. So who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? What's that talking about? Well, uh, those are words used over and over again in the New Testament to talk about angels and demons. So that's what it's talking about. It's talking about angels and demons. Uh, and these are spiritual beings. They're not humans. They're not former humans. Humans don't become angels when they die. Uh, that's not how that works. These are created beings that are made by God to honor him, to serve him. And these are beings that if you ever met one, like if you ever saw an angel, if you ever, if you ever came into contact one, with one, you would marvel at him. You would be tempted to fall flat on your face and worship him. In fact, in the New Testament, when people do meet them, that is what happens. 
you wouldn't be able to take your eyes off them because they're so marvelous, they're so glorious. But notice in this passage, in this passage, notice that their eyes are on you. The marvelous, glorious being's eyes are on you. They're marveling at you. And what specifically are they marveling at? Well, it says, remember working backwards, it says they are marveling in the manifold wisdom of God as it's worked out in the church. Now, what that word manifold means is something like multifaceted, something like intricately detailed down to the finest point. Uh, I have a painting that sits right above my desk at home, and I love this painting. It was given to me by, by my dad. It was sort of like uh, an early inheritance. I said to him since I was a teenager that I, I want that painting when he dies, and he gave it to me when we bought our first house, which is cool, and he's still alive, which is great. Um, and so he gets to see me enjoy it, which I love. Um, but many times throughout the day, I, I actually sit at my desk if I need to think about something or I'm pondering something or even if I'm just on a phone call and I have nothing to look at, I'll sit back and I'll look at the painting. And it's actually it's about like that far from my face uh, on the wall because I have a very narrow desk. And, and so it's right there. And I've done this for months and months now. Sometimes I sit back and I take the entire thing in. I'll look at the whole painting. And other times... I'm looking at the fine details. I'm, it's right there. So I'm, I'm looking at the every little minute brushstroke. Now that's the picture of the manifold wisdom of God, that God has thought of everything down to the finest brushstroke. And when you put it all together, it's marvelous. Something to marvel at, something to sit back and to enjoy. And what this verse is saying is that the angels look at the church this way. That in the church, God is painting this unbelievably intricate, multifaceted, wonderful, marvelous painting. That's what the church is. The church is God gathering together people from every tongue, tribe, nation, language across history to become one people, it says. That he is saving people from such a multifaceted, diverse background of every race, of every tribe, of every heritage, every language. He's, he's bringing them all together. And the angels marvel at that, it says. We get some insight into this in Revelation chapter 7. In chapter Revelation 7, the author gets to see a time when a multitude of people, and it says in there, from every tribe, language, people, and nation on earth, are gathered before God in heaven. It's going on in Revelation 7, and it says this about the multitude. It says, uh, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. In other words, these are those who have gone through suffering. These are those who have gone through suffering, and not just normal suffering, but these are those who have gone through suffering for being a Christian. And then here's what it says. It says, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. These are glorious beings, by the way. The angels are glorious. The elders are glorious. They've got crowns of gold. The four living creatures are glorious. All of these you would be tempted to marvel and to worship. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So what are they doing? They're marveling. 
these wonderful, marvelous beings who you'd be tempted to worship if you ever met one are marveling at what God has done in and through you in the church. And so here's what this is saying, is that when you suffer, when you suffer for being a Christian, when you suffer for following God's will, for being obedient to him, for doing good, when you suffer, angels marvel. They worship. Why? Why? It's because when you suffer like that, you are the most like Jesus you'll ever be. And that's mostly what you see the angels doing in heaven is worshiping Jesus. And so when you suffer like Jesus, they worship Jesus even more. They marvel at it. And so what does that mean? Well, what does it mean when we suffer? Well, we suffer when we give away our time. Because other people who aren't Christians aren't doing that. We suffer when we give away our, our money to the kingdom. Why? Well, other people aren't doing that. We suffer when we give away our energy, our effort. We suffer when we make hard moral decisions in order to honor God and to be obedient to him, right? We're suffering as we do that. And when we suffer like this for the sake of others, it means in those moments, we are becoming more like Jesus. Those are the moments that make us. Those are the moments that shape us. Those are the moments that form us the most. And so get this, not only will angels marvel at this, but it makes you distinct in the world. It makes you distinct. The church is distinct in the world. I mean, how many people have you seen walking by? <laughs> We're the only ones here. We're distinct. We're different. It won't be just the angels who marvel. It will be your friends. It will be your family. It will be your neighbors. It will be your colleagues. It will be people that you've never met before. They will marvel when you choose to suffer for the sake of others. That's not normal. And as they take notice, some of them will be drawn to Jesus through you. And just for that reason alone, it's worth it. Just for that reason alone, it's worth it. But also, isn't it worth it? Because when you suffer for Christ, you become more like him. I think that is worth it. And so first, we can endure suffering if we grasp where it comes from. It comes from being in God's will. Secondly, we can, we can endure suffering if we grasp what it does, if we know what it does. It makes us more like Christ, which causes angels and everyone else to marvel. And then thirdly, we can endure suffering if we know what we can do with it. So what can you do with it? Well, what does it say? It, says, it actually says you, what you can do with your suffering is you can pray it. Look at verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now here's what this is saying. This is saying that every Christian has somewhere to go with their suffering. Every Christian has somewhere to go with their suffering. And yes, of course, you can go to your friends and you can go to your parents and you can go to your siblings and they might be able to do something. They might be able to fix something for you, comfort you. But look at where Christians can go. The Christian can approach God. It says that we can approach him. There's a famous photograph, well, a number of photographs of JFK Jr. when his dad was president. And in one of them, JFK Jr., he's, uh, he's sitting underneath the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. He's a little boy sitting underneath the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. 
um, while his dad is hard at work running the country. And it's this great photo of this child who's just there with his dad, who happens to be the most powerful man in the world. Now, if anyone wants to get in to see the president, if anyone wants to get in to see him, right, they had to be important, right? It has to be a senator, a general, a world leader. They have to have a reason. They have to be invited. Well, what the picture shows you is not, not his son. His son's not a general. His son's not a senator. Now, the son who bears his own name doesn't need an invitation. He has complete access. He could go all the way in. Not just sit on the sofa, but he could go all the way in and sit under the desk. And that's what this passage is saying, that every Christian has the access of a son or a daughter. If you are God's son, if you are God's daughter, this is saying that you have complete, unfettered access to the God of the universe, the one who created everything, that there's nothing that stands in your way. And notice also the, the picture this passage paints is of a father who's, who's not distracted, who's listening intently to our every word and our every cry. And speaking of those words and cries, look at the two ways we can approach God. It says we can approach him with freedom and confidence. And that word freedom, it could be translated as boldness. And in the ancient world, that word was used uh, to talk about freedom of speech. It's the same phrase they would use to talk about freedom of speech, which means you have the right to say anything you want to say. And isn't that great when you're suffering? to be able to bring all your hurts, all your anger, all your pain, all your frustration to God. And to bring all your hurts, all your anger, all your frustration with God. When you're frustrated with him, you have freedom of speech, it says. To tell him how you feel. That's called lament. There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this kind of prayer called Lamentations. More than a quarter of the Psalms, 42 of them to be exact, are prayers of lament. And so what this is saying is you have freedom of speech. You don't actually need to clean up your act. You don't need to clean up your speech. In your prayers to God, you can be honest with him. This text is saying you have complete freedom of speech when you pray. So total access to go in and say whatever is on your heart. But it also says that, uh, that there's a confidence. In other words, what it's saying is we can approach... God the Father with all the assurance that our presence is joyful to him, that he wants us there, that he desires for us to be there. Think about it like this. You know the illustration of JFK Jr. and his dad. It's not a perfect illustration, and it's not for a lot of reasons, but uh, one reason is this. and It's not a perfect illustration because in that photo, his dad's doing work. Actually, in all the photos, his dad's doing work. He's either reading something or he's talking to someone else in the room. His son is there, but he's distracted. He's doing something else. And what this passage is saying is that when we come to God the Father, he welcomes us joyfully. He's not distracted. We're not bothering him when we come to him. He welcomes us with joy. And actually, when we come, we bring him joy. Now, there's one other thing we need to see in this verse, and it's this. I remember working backwards through verse 12, and he says... We have access, the access of a son. Notice it's through the son. So we have the access of a son, but notice that it's through the son. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And so you only get the access of a son through the son. That's what it's saying. 
Uh, now, there's a word that shows up in this passage four times, and I've um, saved it to look at it at the end, and it's the word mystery. It's partly why I said it at the end, because it's a mystery. Let me make it a mystery for you. Uh, it's the word mystery. You see it in verse 3, you see it in verse 4, you see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 9. And now, when, when you hear and think of that word uh, mystery, what do you think of? You probably think of what I think of. I think of Sherlock Holmes. I think of a really good true crime podcast. Uh, and and you, you know how those work. It's something that, uh, that you, once you piece all the clues together, you can figure it out. Like it's already out there. The truth is there. You just have to, you know, get all the clues in order and, and figure it out. Um, and when you think of mystery, we think of something we have to discover. Uh, but that's not the Bible's word. The Bible's word means something more like reveals. It's something that has to be revealed because you could never discover it on your own. You can never piece the clues together on your own. And so Paul's job here is not to be like a true, true, pri- true crime podcaster and hold on to the mystery until the end. His, his job is not to do that. Uh, he's not like a mystery novelist, only revealing the mystery on the last page. His job is to share it on the first page. His job is to proclaim it in the first episode, to proclaim it from the mountaintops in the city squares everywhere he can. So what is the mystery that is revealed? The mystery is this. It's that in and through Jesus Christ, everyone can be welcomed and given access to God the Father. That's the mystery. And Paul's job is to proclaim that. Did you see it in verse 6? This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so the incredible thing this passage shows us is that everyone, no matter their race, no matter their, their heritage, no matter how they've rejected God in the past, everyone can have access, the same access that the Son has. That's the mystery. That through Jesus Christ, every single person, no matter how far from God, can be brought near to God and is given access to God the Father through the Son. And that had to be revealed. Well, how? How do you get that access? Well, when Jesus Christ came to live on earth, that means that God came here. God came here. And do you know what he said when when he was here? He said this in, in John 14, verse 6. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in verse 7, he said, if you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. And so we know the Father by knowing the Son. If we really know the Son, we know the Father. And to really know the Son is to know what he's done for you. And do you know what he did? He suffered. He suffered. And yes, he suffered physically. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. He was nailed to a cross. And that was real suffering. It was utter physical torment to the point of death. He died because of that suffering. But do you know what his real suffering was? When he suffered at the end of his life, he lost his access. He lost access to the Father. It says when Jesus Christ died, he became sin. Not that he did sin, but that he became sin. Which means he lost his access to the Father. God the Father couldn't look at him. He couldn't accept him. Because when it says he became sin, that means that all of our sin was put on him. And it was in that moment that God poured out all the punishment and rejection that you and I deserve for turning our backs on him. And it was in that moment that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his access. His worst suffering is that he was forsaken. 
But do you know why he did that? He did it so you could have access to God the Father. Because not only does it say that he who knew no sin became sin, but it also says that he did it so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. That's the mystery, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I are made righteous. And not only that, but we're made sons and daughters who are joyfully accepted into the Father's presence. And so, yes, Christians suffer. They do. And if you're not now, you will. But look at what that means. Think about that. Think if if you only suffer because you're outside God's will, what does that mean about the cross? The cross is saying that suffering often is right in the center of God's will. The suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross is the exact center of it. It's the climax of the history of the world. So it can't be that suffering for being a Christian means you're outside God's will. It usually means the opposite. And so if you're suffering for being a Christian, suffering for making the hard life decisions that Christians have to make, for making the hard moral decisions that Christians have to make, what that means is you're being just like Jesus Christ. That means you're probably right at the center of God's will. Now, just one, briefly, one last thing before we're done. Did you see what it says in verse 13? Look at it one more time. I want you to see that when you grasp these three things, where suffering comes from, comes from being in the center of God's will. What it does, it makes you more like Christ, so the angels marvel. Uh, And what you can do with it, you can pray it. If you can grasp these three, three things, it actually creates, look at this, a willingness to suffer. Look at it in verse 13. Paul has this new willingness I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. What does that mean? What is he saying? He's actually saying that he's willing to suffer for their sake, on their behalf. He's recognizing that his suffering on their behalf is going to turn out for their good. It might not turn out well for him. He's doing it for their glory for their good. And here's what I want you to see. When you can grasp that Christian suffering, the suffering that comes from being a Christian, is often an indication that you're fulfilling God's will. It means that you can finally become willing to suffer for the sake of others. And this can take all kinds of forms. In Paul's case, it means he became a missionary, but it it might be that God's not calling you to do that. For you, it might be that it's just that you're willing to suffer so you can tell your neighbor about Jesus or you can invite them to church. For you, it might be that you become willing to use some of your income to provide hospitality to others by buying a bunch of food or taking people out to dinner. It might be that you're willing to use some of your time and energy to help start a ministry here in our church or step way out of your comfort zone and Start welcoming new people on a Sunday. Listen, suffering for being a Christian, it takes all kinds of forms. But I'll just tell you one thing, then I'm going to leave you with this. It's not something we should run away from. It's not something we hide from. It's something we should lean into. Because when we suffer for the sake of others, that is when we are becoming more and more like Jesus. The more we do that, the more like Jesus we are. Jesus Christ who suffered for us. And imagine what your life would be like. Imagine what your faith would be like. Imagine what our church would be like if we all took that approach to suffering. Uh, Let me ask God to help us in that.
Our Father, we recognize that suffering often is an indication that we're right in the middle of your will for us. Uh, but Lord, that's a really hard truth for us to swallow. It's a really challenging truth for us to take on. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your strength uh, to make us strong where we feel weak, uh, to give us hope when we're suffering. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.